Welcome to another in our series of Kehillat Israel podcasts. This is a recording of Rabbi Amy Bernstein's weekly Friday morning Torah study. We are in the third parsha of our of our studying Torah this year together, of our cycle of beginning at Genesis, um, because we are in the first year of a three-year cycle. We finished the third year last year. We are beginning, that means at the beginning of every Parsha. We're going to read the first third or so uh, of every Torah portion. This is so we stay with the rest of the Jewish world, that we're reading the same portion that the rest of the Jewish world is reading. They read some of them, the whole thing. My Jews do not have patience for that. Therefore, we read a third of each portion, um, but we want to make sure we're on the same Torah portion as the rest of the Jewish world. All right. So we will be reading the first third. So when I tell you the portion, you just go to the beginning of it and you're in the right place. That only happens one out of every three years. So enjoy it. Otherwise, it's like, what a first is she starting? Okay. So we are, I've already misplaced my uh, Robert Alter translation that I was all excited to read from for you today. So, okay, great. Okay. Starting off really strong here. All right. So we're at chapter 12, verse 1. We are beginning uh, till now. We have been dealing, so we dealt in Bereshit, right? In our first parsha, we dealt with creation. Yeah. Then in Parshat Noah, we are still dealing with a universal story. Right? The flood narrative is a universal story. The covenant that is cut between God and the folks in Noah is a universal covenant that, according to our tradition, is still in effect. That covenant is still in place. The rainbow covenant, as it's sometimes called, the covenant God makes by putting the keshet, the rainbow in the sky at the end of the story, that covenant with humanity is still in place for the rest of humanity. We got like 600 more things that we had to do to live into a covenant with the divine, says our sacred mythology. Um, But it doesn't abrogate the first covenant. Does that make sense? So that is still in effect for everybody. We had a second covenant, and that covenant happens at Sinai. Yeah? All right. So the story until now, until right now, the story has been a universal story. What happens now is the point. We're finally getting to the point. And that is the story of one particular family. That one particular family is our family, right? So now starts the story that begins the story of the Jewish people. So Lorraine, you've come at a really good time. (laughs) The very beginning of our story as a people is with the story of the two uh, ancestors, Avram and Sarai. Yes? So we're used to hearing it a little bit differently, of course. But right now we are dealing with a guy named Avram. And we are dealing with a woman, his wife, named Sarai. Right? So we're going to look a little bit at the play on his name. What does her name mean? Anybody remember? Yes. Well done. Gold star. All right. Sarai means princess. Um, Remember last year we studied all of these stories uh, from the perspective of Mesopotamian culture. We studied all of these stories from the perspective of what women who were priestesses, that these women are originally priestesses. A lot. These stories come from those those women as who would have been the archetype that people were looking to writing about, who would have been the ancestress, would have been a priestess. So this, this the Sarai being princess is that same kind of um, stature and status as the Mesopotamian foremothers, right, of, of these stories. Sarai, likely a petimento of ancient Near Eastern Mesopotamian stories about the ancestress. 
Okay? So we, we will see lots of resonances. Um, and if you're interested in this, uh, you can listen to my podcast uh, of this class from last year at these Parshiot. Uh, and the book is called um, Sarah the Priestess uh, by um, Savina. I know, right? Okay, I, I, it'll come to me. It's Sabine. It's Sabine. You're not old enough for this. Sarah me. Does it mean princess as well? Ah. So the, the, the spelling gets changed, gets changed to be a Yahwist name. So does Avram. They're going to change it, right, to be a Yahwist rendition, right? And when we talk about, right, Yahweh, we're talking about yud Hey, vav Hey, right? So the Hey is going to get added to Avram's name. And to the name of Sarai. I don't make this stuff up, people. Okay. So. Uh, nothing like an enthusiastic crowd. All right. Let's look at uh, the beginning of our text. Chapter 12. The Lord said to Avram... Go forth from your native land and from your father's house to the land that I will show you. I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you shall be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and curse him that curses you. And all the families of the earth shall bless themselves by you. Avram went forth as the Lord had commanded him, and Lot went with him. Avram was 75 years old when he left Haran. Avram took his wife Sarai and his brother's son Lot and all the wealth that they had amassed and the persons that they had acquired in Haran and they set out for the land of Canaan. When they arrived in the land of Canaan, Avram passed through the land as far as the site of Shechem and the Terebinth of Morah. The, Canaan, the Canaanites were there, then in the land. Okay. Vayomer Adonai el Avram. God calls to Avram. Why Avram? Didn't earlier Avram say, Hineni, here I am, when God spoke to him? Why would God be calling Avram? He had some special His lineage. He had special qualities? Okay. What are those? Um, he was very uh, hospitable. Um, I would say generous. Is this before he smashed the uh, tablet? The God things. Is this before he smashes the God things? Sarah, you are bringing to us a very, obviously, very famous midrash. That is nowhere in Torah. Not there. It is a midrash. But it is so beloved that it has become, like, right? You, we assume it's in here. Because that story has become so beloved by the Jewish people. Because... There's no reason God calls Avram. Oh, That's a trick Maybe. question. <laughs> That's a trick question. Are you shocked? <laughs> Maybe he called others and only Avram answered. Maybe he called others, only Avram answered. There's no reason God calls Avram. In Torah. In Torah. Cuz. <laughs> or in Hebrew. Kaha. <laughs> Kaha. That's how it is. So that could be frustrating on the one hand. Wait, what? Like, he's just some guy, right? God forbid it's just some guy, right? But, but the way my teachers at Hartman talked about it is this is essentially a love story. This is a love story. Avram doesn't earn it. Avram is chosen by God for a relationship. And his descendants, out of that love, will have a special relationship with the divine. Period. 
Awesome. Thank you for. <laughs> that also means that God could have a relationship with any one of us. Correct. So, so, so that really, on some levels, so on some levels, this makes it exclusive. Right? God chose Avram for reasons that we can't ever compete with because we're not Avram. On the other hand, that's how all love stories in a weird way it is democratizing. Yes. If God loves Avram, maybe God could love me. And certainly our story as a people is because God loved Avram, God has a special place in God's heart for me because I'm related to that guy, right? As an adoptee, as someone who was not born Jewish, as you all know, um, who, but was converted as an infant, who always felt, it's in our DNA. Okay, well, it's not in my DNA, none of it. But for me, this was one of the things that connected me deeply to the Jewish people, was a feeling of these are our mythic ancestors. I'm as closely related to this guy as any one of you. That was the democratizing effect of these stories for me as a child, was that I could belong to Avram as Avram's descendant. doesn't matter exactly how I got there, but as a person descended from these mythic ancestors, I mean, I wouldn't have used that word as a child, obviously, (laughs) but right as someone in that family, I had a special relationship with the divine. So this story has been beloved by us, right, as a people, to talk about God loving our patriarch and matriarch, and we're their descendants. That's the point, right, of Genesis, is to get to this moment, is to get to this story. So we're Jews by coincidence. Yes. By choice. Yes. So we are, we, no, we are, we are descendants of Abraham by accident, because so are the descendants of Ishmael. Right, so it's not just the Jewish people who descend from Avram. Um, we are Jews because we signed on to some crazy deal at a mountain in the middle of a desert. And this doesn't right say- that, that that becomes the exclusive relationship. This is our story, yes. but it doesn't say that other peoples can't have their story. Correct. It doesn't say that and, God and talk- other people share this origin story with us. Right, Muslims share this origin story with us. Christians will say they are descendants of Abraham. Right? So we share this, this founding narrative with the three Abrahamic traditions. So what does it say about non-Abrahamic traditions, if anything? Or nothing. 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 So this doesn't preclude that God could have a relationship, a special relationship with Hindus or Buddhists. Does not in any way preclude that. Which is why we changed as Reconstructionists the language mm-hmm. of Asher Bachar Banu Mikol Amim, who chose us from among all the other peoples. Mm-hmm. We believe it's likely, well, any God that I want to be in relationship mm-hmm. with, it's likely that God would choose Every people in its own way to be in relationship uniquely to the divine. Hmm? Because Kaplan and his students really believed that if you want to invite your neighbor to come to shul with you and they're sitting next to you reading the English, can you feel good about what it says? Who, blessed is God who chose us from among all other people. It was written to say, who chose us from among all other people. But that writing was rabbinic. Oh. <clears throat> yeah. It was the rabbis. That's yeah, not so in that's the, the Torah. Rabbis. That blessing is not in the Torah. Yeah. Right. So then the beginning of 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 who commands us to engage with words of Torah. That is the bracha every Jew in the world says so before they study Torah. Yeah, she's just talking about the bracha when you're called to the bima to read from yeah, the Torah. That's sometimes changed. So yes, yeah, so right, we cha- every place that it says, asher bachar banu mikol ha'amim, Reconstructionist Jews change it. Okay. We take that out and we insert, asher kervanu la'avodato, who, who has drawn us near to your service. So conservative, just to help me. Uh-huh. It's not written, it's oral. But you're like you're saying. 
Mm. Well, it's written in terms of being Jewish law that that's the bracha you say for Torah study. That's the bracha you say when you're called to Torah, right? That is, I mean, it's written down, but it's rabbinic. Not in the Torah. Right. (laughs) Right. Yes. And there still is an argument from people about being the chosen people. There's something about a like a hierarchy of snobbishness almost, of wanting to be exclusive. Yeah, so some people are very attached to that language, and some people are very attached to that idea, and some people want to reconstruct that idea. They want to say, oh, well, if it really means everybody's chosen, then why can't we leave it in? Because Kaplan decided you better believe what you say and say what you believe, and if do you really want to leave that language in? So, Those I mean, would we change it today? Would we change it today? I don't know. But classical mm-hmm. Reconstructionism changed it. All right. Twelve. Where Where are we? Okay. Vayomer Adonai Elavram. We got it four words in. Excellent. Twenty minutes into study, we got four words. All right. So God says to Avram, Lech Lecha. So, as we all know, this is an interesting construction. It doesn't really make a lot of sense. Lech is the command form. Go. Uh, Lacha, so to you is what it literally means. Um, lots and volumes and volumes have been written on these two words. Lech lecha. What does that mean? Go you to you. Go. Out. So lots of time has been spent on what does that mean? Obviously, it's a command for him to go because it says me'artzecha from your land. So it is obviously a command to leave, right? It is not some euphemism. It is a command to go. Um, but lots has been written on why is it said like this? Go you to you, blah, blah, blah. We're not going to spend a lot of time there. All right. Go you. So it's command form. Uh, from your land. Umimoldatecha. From your birth country. Umibet avicha. And from the house of your ancestor. Aretz asher areka. To the land that I will show you, right? The famous call to Avram. So Avram is to leave his country, his birthplace, his home, to go to the land that God will show him. Would you go? Would Sarai go? Right. Right. And missing from the conversation, right. uh, missing from the Torah is the conversation between Mr. and Mrs. Avram. <laughs> right? Um, honey? <laughs> I just had an interesting conversation. Right? Exactly. So um, it, it's not until we get to Yaakov that we have Yaakov going out to the field to talk to his wives to say, I'm thinking we need to get out of here. What do y'all think? It's not till Yaakov that we get Mrs. Anybody consulted about whether or not they're going. Yeah? Is, there, is there commentary? On, it seems redundant to say, leave from your later native land, your father's house. Like... It mentions three different things. Right. So are you saying it seems repetitive? No, but surely the rabbis must have some reason. uh, Absolutely. Absolutely. Right. Right. So Artsakha is kind of the broad, Uh you know, kind of the broad Mm -hmm. place that you come from. Um, Moldatecha is kind of, you know, the ancestral place of your kinsfolk. Mm -hmm. And Beit Avicha is your clan. clan. So it's kind of a, a... Starts broad, but becomes very specific about leaving everything that's in any way from the broadest mm-hmm. to the most specific what's familiar to you. Yeah. Well, considering how Abraham behaved later with Sarai, Sarai, Sarai Sarah, uh, you know, when he sort of put her in that place to be the mistress or whatever, <laughs> I mean, I, we never heard what her thoughts were. Correct. So I guess that was. This is common at that time when he lived? For sure. For sure. For sure it was common that the patriarch made all the decisions for everybody. I think it's interesting that there's never mentioned a consequence if you don't do this. If you don't what? If you don't go as instructed, if you don't leave, it's just you accept that this is an order and you do it. 
it never says or else. Mm-hmm. Right? So God... But it does in other situations in the Torah, like... No, 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 no. God, it, only after we've agreed. Okay. I was thinking about the, the part where it says... If you live this life, you'll get this. Because you agreed to the deal, right? So had Avram said, heck no, I'm not going. I'm going to inherit the dealership. Are you kidding? Like, no way, right? Then what what would would have been the consequence? I don't know. But that's not the story, right? The story only can be told about someone who says, Hidani, here I am, I am ready. Once we agreed at a mountain in the middle of a desert, that's to it. a certain code. Now, if you keep that code, here's what will happen for you. Wow. If you don't, here are the consequences. But that was a deal we signed on to. Right. So now, right? now how voluntary was that? <laughs> that is another conversation with lots of midrashim, right? You know, right. we God asked everybody else. Everybody else said, what does it say first? We were the first ones to say, Na'asef and Ishma, we will do it. Then we'll hear about what it is. And then there's on the same page, the commentary says, God held the mountain over their heads and said, you will you think? accept my Torah? <laughs> okay. Right. <laughs> sure. Mama. This is a huge uh, give um, because um, land was gold. I mean, land was the thing. And what they're talking about is leaving your land, leaving all of your great possession. Um, to go somewhere that I promise you, you, you may not even get that land in the, in the new place, but, but you've got to give up something incredibly precious. And in the ancient world, not only the land was precious, but the protection of your kinfolk, right? right. That is the most important thing you had in your moldatecha, in your birthplace, bibet avicha, the house of your ancestor. You had protection. You had a clan and a tribe and past that, right, you know, folks from your country who would defend you. You leave that. You're on your own. You're on your own. Or you have God. Or you have God. All right. And I will make you into goy gadol, a big goy, a big people. A gansamacher. Absolutely. You'll be a gansamacher. Absolutely. But a different kind. Because he's already a gansamacher, right? So he, but you'll be a different, you'll be the ancestor gansamacher. All right. So, and I will bless you, and I will make grand Shemecha your name. And you will be a bracha. You will be a blessing. Okay. Then God goes on. And I will bless all who bless you, and I will curse all who curse you. And they will be blessed in you. Who? All the families of the earth. All right, Mehmet, you've been waiting to say something. I'm missing that chapter. Yeah. <laughs> That's the midrash. It's all midrash. <laughs> right. It's in. It's in the white fire. Right. The black fire and white fire. So. Um, so I mean, I'm kidding partly. Like it's not here. But of course the rabbis are a little disturbed. I I think. I think the rabbis are a little like you got to be a little nuts. <laughs> Don't you to follow a voice that says leave ev in the ancient world where if you leave your toast, leave everything that you know and I'm going to I'm going to make you a great nation. I'm going to bless you. It's going to be awesome. 
Just trust me, right? I think there's some anxiety on the part of the. Who does that? You've got to be a little. Am I right? What you diagnose somebody is a, a lot, right? Thank you, Mark. So he's a psychoanalyst. He knows this stuff. So you'd have to worry about somebody, right? So, so I think for the rabbis, they need they need a good origin story for Avram. That, that first partly goes to why would he do this, um, but also goes to I, I think why Avram, right? Pam was quick to give us reasons why Avram. Because it makes us a little nervous that it's random. They want Avram to have a backstory that kind of explains why God, out of everybody else, picks this guy. Right? And so the backstory of he doesn't like his father being an idolater, it doesn't make any sense to him, he figured it out early, you know, they can't see, how could they possibly, you know, they, they don't eat, why do you give them food, they can't do anything, you made them, how can you worship something like, it's silly to him, because it's silly to the rabbis. We know idols weren't thought of as gods, right, that, that is a stupid, simplistic understanding of idolatry. It's a misunderstanding of idolatry. The idol was there to represent the God, right? And so all of that is rabbinic wrestling. We don't, we don't like randomness. We certainly don't want to think, right, God might favor that person randomly over me. Yes. All right. Did I see another hand or no? Unlike Noah, Noah, there was a reason. Because he's a righteous man in his generation. Correct. No, but but the Torah gives a reason. Right. Unlike Avram. Right. Susan? Well, I was going to ask a question related to what you're saying, and that is you always refer to the rabbis, and you've told us before. Could you tell us again, who are these rabbis? When did they live? When did they make these decisions? What are their names and addresses? All right, so we have the codification of Torah. Torah is codified. Um, it is canonized, right? The canon is closed, right? We decide no more texts are going to be added to the canon. But then you've got a lot of conversation about the canon, You've got a lot of conversation, right, about what's going on. You're just not going to add anything written to the actual canon of the Torah, okay? Um, so once that happens, now everything else is essentially commentary on the Torah, right? Midrash, if you will. So when the canon is closed, there are already schools where people are learning these texts, and those are the rabbis, our sages of blessed memory. You take those letters, and it's the acronym is Chazal. So that's how they're often referred to, Chazal, our sages. That continues for generations, the writings about these texts. Is it still continuing? Of course. The, so of course. the Midrash keeps growing? Of course. Midrashic literature keeps growing. The biggest growing body of Midrash is around women's stories. Where's Mrs. Abram's story? Right? Where's the lost story of Sarai that's left back in, in the dust of Mesopotamia? Right? So that's most of the Midrash being written. So the, but when we talk about the rabbis, capital R, we are talking about those rabbis who we see in the Talmud who, who made famous many of the stories like the smashing of Terach's idols. That is a story told by the rabbis living in 200, 300, 400, 500 of the common era. When the second temple's destroyed in 70, and we talk about how did we survive, right? Israelite cult religion was obliterated. Our holy place was obliterated. We should have been gone. That's when we changed from being Israelites to being what? Jews. Jews. Who did that? The rabbis. The Pharisees. The rabbis who were already pushing back against the priests. Remember those conversations we've had? Mm -hmm. That the priests are corrupt, they're whatever, they, they get their power by heredity. The rabbis are pushing back against that. That's already happening when these folks get obliterated. 
Who's left? The rabbis, capital R. Those are the people in general we're referring to and or the famous ones like Maimonides, who lives a lot later. A lot later. But he's so influential that you know, he's one of the guys that kind of is lumped in with the, the earlier rabbis. So we're talking about the rabbinic period, the period where we move from being Israelite cult practice to Judaism. Those rabbis, that's called the rabbinic period, and those rabbis are the ones generally we refer to when we say the rabbis, meaning the tradition that grows up around these texts. That's a major shift in culture. Major shift, huge shift, sea change. Yeah. Some people say we're at that place again. Mm-hmm. We're there again. <laughs> that we shouldn't panic. We've been here before. Mm-hmm. Uh, Amy, um, traditionally Abraham came from Ur of the Chaldeans. Mm-hmm. And the Chaldean culture was very oriented towards astrology, yes. stargazing. Is, is Abraham being asked to leave that behind as the incorrect or non-divine wisdom in order to acquire a new wisdom? It's a great question. So par- that's a great question. Um, part of answering the question is trying to figure out we can go one of two ways. What do we think, right? Or we can say, okay, so for the biblical author, right, for the people telling this tale, would that have been an important part of it? Mm-hmm. And what, we're, what we did when we, re, when we read Savina Tuval, <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> when, we, when we studied Savina Tuval, we studied that Sarai was never consulted about leaving any of that. Sarai, Rivka, would have brought their Mesopotamian priestess practice with them. No one says leave that. When Rachel steals the trophim from her father, the I, the household gods, why would she take them if she doesn't believe in them? Okay, well, the rabbis want to say, the rabbis want to say, uh, because she, she didn't want her father dealing in idolatry. <laughs> she was the youngest daughter. We talked about the youngest daughter inherited the role of priestess from the matriarch. Those were hers. She took them because they belonged to her by right. They were her mother's, right? So, but what we're claiming is they brought that identity and those practices with them. The rabbis do not want that. The rabbis want it that Avram and Sarai left all of that. And they follow the one God and leave behind, right, those traditions. I'm not so sure. Mm-hmm. I mean, it seems to be an ongoing dialogue between the astrological worldview, yes. which is common to us. Yes, absolutely. So I'm not so sure. And, and Judaism of the kind. Yes. Maybe Judaism originally was far more oriented towards the astrological And it survives, right? We see ancient synagogues with, with the, what do you call it? The Zodiac, Zodiac on the floor. It survives in Judaism. Even, yeah. right? It doesn't. It doesn't get eradicated. It's and even the, the word Elohim yeah. that we use right. for God is plural. Right. Exactly. All right. So, so what? What does this mean? As you can see, I'm not pushing hard uh, to go to go forward. Um, because usually I push us if I need to go somewhere. <laughs> I don't need to go anywhere. All right. So, what does that mean? And all of the people, the families of the earth, will be blessed through you, in you. You'll be an example? You will be an example. You will be a light to the world. Okay. It is a reflexive verb, if that matters to anybody. <laughs> so, essentially, people will bless themselves through you. Maybe when they want to make a bracha for themselves, they're going to name you. I want 
us to be as a family like that guy and his family. I want what he has. I'll have what she's having. Right? So I want, I want what he has. That, that you're going to be so fantastically blessed that everyone's going to look at you and go, that is what I want for us. And isn't that what ultimately happened, yes. at least in the Western world? Uh, right? Mm-hmm. For sure. Right? Okay. So then what happens next? Ram goes forth. Oh, you want me to Would go? Would you like to read? <laughs> well, I took it all the way to the end. <laughs> oh, did you? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, okay, I read, I read okay. up through. Uh, sorry, my fault. Okay, Avram, Vayelech Avram. And Avram went. God says, Lech. Vayelech Avram. So Avram left. Right? Just as God had said to him, right? Vayelech ito lot. So who lechs with him? Lot. Lot. And uh, Avram was ben chamesh shanim v'shivim shana, but say to mecharan. He is 75 years old when he departs from Haran. Uh, and there's lots written in the book uh, Sarai the Priestess uh, by Sabina Tuval. Um, there's lots written there about um, this journey from Haran and what you said exactly about Or of the Chaldees. Um, that, that, Haran, that Haran, or I don't want to get into it, but, but, but the fact that it's Haran is important for the matriarchal priestess narrative what was going on in Haran versus Ur of the Chaldees. Um, and you'll, you'll notice that they're in, um, he's originally from, right, Ur. They're in Haran. Okay. So Aram took his wife, Sarai, right, and his brother's son, Lot. So Lot is his nephew. Why does he take Lot? He's young. Huh? Why else might he have taken him? I think he took Lot and the Nefeshes here, the uh, souls, um, because how is he going to be a great nation without with Sarah? They don't have any children. Avram does not have an heir. Possibly he takes Lot he is adopting his nephew as his heir, right? Would he the oldest? Would, would Lot the oldest of us? I, I don't know. We don't know. Um, but we, but so possibly this is why he's taking Lot with him. He doesn't have an heir, mm-hmm. and forget even you know you're going to be a great nation even even without mm-hmm. like he possibly he's mm-hmm. already adopted Lot as his heir. You would you would need an heir in the ancient world certainly before the Yahwist call, you got to have somebody to feed, somebody feeds the ancestors, right? And does all the rituals on behalf of the dead ancestors. When you die, certainly Avram, who has not had the call back here yet, would have needed an heir to perform all the rituals for him after he dies. So it is perfectly logical to assume that he's already made Lot his heir. And we know, we've, we studied the whole story last time, last year, from Sarai's perspective about her acquiring her own heir, right? Yeah, it's unfortunate in a way that we already know that story. <laughs> right. Right. All right, Sheldon, something's bothering you. What's bothering you? Nothing's Okay, so it just makes sense. If you're 75 years old, who's going to carry the luggage up the stairs, right, when you get to your next lodging place? All right. Don't think you can't make that Huh? Okay. What? The next phrase, the translation here is the, the persons they acquired. Yes. Yes. Were those slaves? Yes, they are. They are slaves, for sure. I assume family members, too, because they have to be someone for Lot to marry. Well, Lot can marry a local, unless he has to marry. You know, I mean, like they... So, he, remember, Avram is a wealthy guy. Mm. He has a retinue. He is not, like, putting a 
stick with a bandana with stuff in it over his shoulder and like be bopping down the road like a freestyling, yeah, I'm following my, my voices. The, he is a wealthy man. He's right. heading out with his entire retinue. And, and, and the folks, it doesn't say acquired, it says asu, made. People who had been made part of his household through marriage, through whatever, right? He hires them. You're now going to be my tailor. You got to travel with me, right? So, and or slaves. For sure, they would have had slaves. 100%. What do the rabbis translate this to mean, Pam? Every nefesh that went, that had been made part of his household. What do the rabbis read that as? I, I see it as they're going to be the spiritual ancestors because why did they say ish you know like or but remember nefesh doesn't mean soul in the bible what does it mean person self there's no differentiation no that's rabbinic the rabbis take nefesh to mean the non-material part of one's self there's no such thing in the bible Kol nefesh just means every person. Every so the non-material. So doesn't that mean spiritual? What, what that's I'm saying that's rabbinic. Oh, that yeah. Rabbis do that. It's not here. Yeah. The Torah doesn't recognize that as a distinction. Mm-hmm. But if you're going to be the rabbis, <laughs> for them this is everyone. Avram converted to monotheism. People. <laughs> Gosh. <laughs> All right, so he is the first monotheist. So he converts all these people to monotheism, and that is every soul that Avram made. Mm. He made Jews. Okay. I'm the daughter of Abraham and Sarah. That's exactly right. Why do you think we named you that? Yeah, I do know why. This is why, right? Okay. Because you can get made. Part of that lineage, right? right. By adoption. I, I'm a made woman. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like now you tell us. <laughs> I'm like the Italian made man. Now she tells us. All right. I'm telling you, they cannot prepare you for some things in rabbinical school. <laughs> he, may, he may take it back, however. <laughs> All right. What's interesting in Yiddish? Huh? What's interesting in Yiddish yeah. is that a nefesh is also a little baby just born. Mm-hmm. It's a whole being. It's not just a soul. It's mm-hmm. body and soul. Interesting that it survives in Yiddish yeah. as a as a unity, yeah. as a as a concept. Mm-hmm. That's very interesting. Wow. Having read this many times now, it's, it's kind of amazing to me that it starts out so simplistically here, and yet when the story goes on, I mean, there's trophim. I mean, it, it, all sorts of things are going on that here uh, supposedly would never happen, right? It's pure. Everything's wonderful. <laughs> <laughs> and then it just goes on and on and on. And there's idols all over the place. <laughs> how, do the, how do the rabbis deal with that? <laughs> so, which idols are you are you referring to? The the, the, the trophim, you, you, the ones you, you just mentioned. You know, Rachel still dragging him along. All sorts of things are going on in the temple that shouldn't be going on in the temple. You know, uh, if, if people weren't monotheistic. They seem to be here on page one. But. <laughs> so, so I mean, answer you, that you, question. You, then you get all the way to the prophets, and they're you know still. Uh, they wouldn't be railing against so, idolatry. If so, what is going on here, then? Um, this is the ideal. This is the beginning. Well, is this is this a, a I don't know. I'm just <laughs> this is really wild. But is this a repetition of? The purity of the of the uh, uh, story of, of creation, because doesn't it happen all the time? Yeah. Doesn't it happen all the time? We start out, yay! <laughs> you know, here 
Right? And then... We start out in the garden, then, man. We start out with every new year. Oh. The reality of... The reality of... I mean, yeah. we, you know, we always said it was simple. Oh, God gave us the choice of free will. That's what went wrong. Well, okay, but some... I, I get your point. That it that is the human story, is that we start with some kind of you know, from creation to every other great story we tell. It starts out really great, right, and and kind of a pure vision of what it's gonna what it's supposed to be, and then because we're humans, right, like that. But what I love is that that's our Torah. That's our story. This family? Oh, my gosh, this family. Are you kidding me? This is the chosen family? This is the elect family of all the families in the universe? What is going to happen in this family? Oh, my God, really? (laughs) But I love that. I, I love that that's our foundational narrative because I love that we don't live in a tradition that asks us for the impossible. For it not to be a mess. As long as we're here, it's going to be a mess. Now, what do you do with that? Do you give up? Okay, it's all going to be a mess, so forget about it? No. So we have to find within that mess those moments, those visions, those hopes, those dreams, those crazy ideas those rules that help mitigate how it is and move it a little a little bit closer to how it should be. Rabbi Yitz Greenberg says this is the entire point of God giving Torah. Is God finally, in giving Torah, God finally accepts that we're a mess. <laughs> finally. And says, okay, I I surrender. I get it. They need Torah to help move this world that they are creating from what it is to what it should be. And that's the entire point of Torah. Should be, not could be. Should be. Mm -hmm. Should be. It is definitely language of should. Why? What's the difference? Could and should. What's the difference? But yeah, I could command it be purple. What's the difference between could be and should be? What's the difference between a possibility and should be? Not necessity. It could be purple. So what's the difference between what it could be and what it's? What it should be. You're mi- no. I love how we jump no. right. We jump right over it. There is a big difference. That you help make it that way. Okay, but we could help make it purple. Is it good and bad? Yes. Who said it? Dan. What did she say? It's about good and bad. Should is about choosing the good. Should be is about choosing ethically and morally for the good. Whether you like it or not, whether you think it's achievable or not, whether you think you need to participate in it or not, there's a way it should be. Should is about values. Should is about ethics. Should means there's a right and there's a wrong. And you have to be about the right. Torah is about figuring out what that is. Right? For those of us who don't believe, Torah is a one-time event. For those of us who believe, revolution, who believe, Freudian slip. Those of us who believe revelation is ongoing, right? We believe we're constantly evolving Torah to help figure out. Because we can clone a human being, should we? Because we can split an atom, should we? The world of could is endless. That is not a Jewish world. You can blow up everything, should you? No. 
Judaism comes down unequivocally on the side of no, you shouldn't. I can smack you in the head. Should I? That depends. I needed that, people. It's been a long week. Um, <laughs> probably why that came out like that. So um, <laughs> that is the point of Torah. That is the point of tradition. That is the point of religion. This is why I get into it with these bar and bat mitzvah kids mm-hmm. who says, why does any of this matter to me? I don't believe in God. So what? <laughs> who cares you don't believe in God? So? Well, I believe in science. So do I. <laughs> Science can do all of these wonderful things. All of this could happen. All of this can be achieved. Should it? Your scientists cannot say one word to me about should we. Mm-hmm. I'm not saying scientists can't participate in that conversation, but the minute they start with should, right? The minute they start with should, they are having a religious conversation. Mm-hmm. Only religion. The spiritual questions, philosophy, however you want to talk about it. I believe you know, religion, when it's religion, and not garbage, mm-hmm. when it's religion, real religion, it's philosophy. Of course it is. And a religious conversation is about, should we? That is the realm that science cannot touch. Science has nothing to say. It can say what it is, what it isn't, what happened, what didn't happen. Mostly we don't know anyway, but... We pretend we do, right? And so if this happened and that, okay, great. You can tell me what is, but you cannot tell me, is that good? Is that right? Science can't tell us that. And that is the thing. You can say I'm a little worked up. Um, <laughs> because I feel like this conversation is the conversation that is missing. Is this our last class? <laughs> right. are, you, are, you, are you leaving? Like, is, is something happening we're unaware of right now? Right? It's because this is a conversation that doesn't happen enough. Should we? That's right. Should we do this? That's the whole Tower of Babel story. Pick up the Jewish Journal, turn to table for five. I am one of the commentators in this week's Jewish Journal. And what I talk about is the Tower of Babel story. They give you one verse of Torah and every, the five rabbis have to comment on it. So, and they're commenting on they, they build a tower with its head in the sky. What's the problem? Why is God upset about that, right? Because I believe part of it, okay, yeah, we can build a tower that's that big, but should we? Is everybody fed? Does everybody have a home to live in? What if someone wants to be a musician and doesn't want to build a tower? Right? If we're all building the tower, right? So should we? And this is the question that I feel like is not asked nearly enough. This is not the central conversation, unfortunately. Too often the conversation is, can we? Can we do that? And that's fine. That's not a bad conversation, but it's not the critical conversation. It's not the most important conversation. The most important conversation is, should we do it? Right? Fracking. Okay, we can get oil another way. Should we? And so, like, if and living in that world is a really hard world to live in, right? Because there, rarely is something absolute... So that means we're going to have to have a pretty intense discussion, right, about should we? And how do we get to that decision that yes, we should or no, we shouldn't? It's right or it's wrong. How do we get there? How did the rabbis decide when the rabbis argued? How did they decide? How did the law go every single time? Majority. majority. The majority. But they, but they needed to, to anchor it in Torah. And what else did they do? They recorded the minority position. Because today, the answer of the majority is no, we shouldn't do that. But we record the minority dissenting opinion because tomorrow, circumstances may be such that we decide now the right thing to do is that we should do exactly that, right? That takes a sophistication and a moral responsibility and a maturity that we lack. 
right now. The rabbis could say it is not kosher. <laughs> the majority has decided. It is treif. It is not kosher. But when they record, <laughs> Rabbi Yitzchak ben Yehuda said, it is absolutely kosher. And his followers agree. Guess what? They still won't eat this because the majority has decided it is not kosher. They record the minority opinion in case, what if there's a famine and this is all there's left to eat? Mm -hmm. Guess what? It's now kosher. (laughs) All right, so, and what does that mean? It means the entire time that Rabbi Yitzchak ben Yehuda, who I just made up, um, (laughs) right, and his followers are not eating this, They know it's because the majority went against them. It's not because they're right. Do you see the difference? Mm -hmm. They still respect it. They still won't eat it. But it doesn't mean that those people were right and their position is wrong. Neither do the people who made that decision. They don't look at these other people and go, you're wrong. They say, we win. We're the majority. We win. That is a sophistication we lack. Right now, I feel like in our society, right now, if you disagree with me, not only are you wrong, (laughs) you are bad. You're not just wrong, you're evil. Deplorable. You're deplorable. It is what Hartman calls, Doniel Hartman calls, intolerable deviance. We now put anybody who disagrees with us into the category of intolerable deviance. Right? There's tolerable deviance. There's diversity. Right? And um, we put we put everybody into the category of intolerably deviant. So there's a fluidity and a respect in the conversation that is always present. Correct. Because the assumption is we're going to go by the majority and you'll fight to the mat for your position because you really don't want that to be kosher for lots of reasons, right? But ultimately, you know that it's going to go according to the majority and then there is a surrender to what's best for the community. That is the ultimate goal. The ultimate goal is preserving the unity of the community. And so you give up your position. You want it recorded because tomorrow, I'm telling you, it's going to change. You're going to see it my way. But <laughs> you, you don't, you don't, there's not a rupture. Well, actually, there, there are. There are, right? And, 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 and how do you see it? You see it when one rabbi says Yom Kippur falls on this date and the other rabbi says it falls on this date. How do you know it's gotten seriously bad when the folks eat on the day the other rabbi says it's Yom Kippur? That happens in the Talmud. We see it. So uh, that's when it's really bad, right? That when you, you don't go with the majority, right? But that, that you have to be ready for that kind of a rupture. And it is not what our tradition has espoused. It has espoused a fluidity of thought, right? And... It, there's a respect for changing one's mind because it's understood that there's not an absolute right and wrong usually. Some things, yes, obviously murder, duh, adultery, duh, like, right? But what is theft? If one person dominates in the classroom, we were told you're stealing the time of other students. That's how I was taught. Well, that's a whole nother definition of stealing, isn't it? Right? So... It's much more fluid, right? It's a different way of thinking and of processing as a community how we make decisions. And so I am very distressed right now that as a country, we are not most interested in how to move forward as a country. We are most interested in it going our way. And I am just as much a part of it as anybody else. I'm not suggesting I'm not. I feel very strongly, right, about my politics. I feel very strongly about my daughter being able to control her reproductive destiny. Um, And I will fight to the mat for it. So I'm not suggesting I'm not part of it. I'm saying, but we've gotten to a place where we don't respect 
the, the other position, and not only do we not respect it, we demonize people who hold, um, who hold a, different, a different opinion. And I'm, I'm deeply concerned about what it means for us as Americans. I'm deeply concerned for our democracy, our republic. I'm deeply concerned for what it's doing to the generation who's watching this. And the generation that's marinating in what has become um, acceptable in terms of the public sphere of how we talk to one another, how we talk about one another, what leaders in our country, the way they talk, it's just, it's become, you know, it's something I'm very, and I hope we all are seriously concerned about. This is why we continue to study Torah. Come back next week. Shabbat Shalom. You've been listening to Rabbi Amy Bernstein's Friday Morning Torah Study from Kehillat Israel in Pacific Palisades, California. For more information, go to our website, www.ourki.org.